0: Heavenly Father, we want to hear you speak to us this morning clearly through your Holy Spirit. We fully acknowledge, Father, that in our flesh we will not receive these words with joy. And yet we know that you can, through this time of worship, help us to understand that much of the persecution and suffering and hardship that takes place in the lives of your people is to serve a much greater good, the glorification of your name, the exaltation of Christ, and the salvation of many lost souls. I pray, Lord, you would show us that this morning, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we praise you for that. We praise you for being a God who is more concerned about the eternal souls of men than our own creature comforts. And so I ask, Lord, that you would stir in each of us a greater love for your Son and the gospel of grace. That we might be people who do not just sing but truly proclaim Jesus is Lord. We desire, Father, to hear this teaching from Acts chapter 8 and be rightly stirred by your Spirit that we would go into the world and we would share the gospel as well that people might hear, repent, and believe and be saved. Above all else, Father, we ask that during this time as we've gathered here and all your true churches have gathered throughout the world that you would be glorified, that we will practice well what we will do for all eternity surrounding your throne Lifting up adoration and praise to you forever and ever. Help us to practice well right now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Are you well this morning? I hope so, okay. Uh, uh, you know, when there's some songs that just, I don't know about you, there's certain songs that stir me. When, when we say Christ, we proclaim name above all names Uh, that should cause your heart to rise up as well. You'll be doing that for all eternity. So let's practice it right now. Let's proclaim Christ well right now by his grace. In Acts chapter 8, the title of the sermon is scattered to be gathered. And that's not oxymoronic, nor is it a contradiction in terms. What we're going to see here is God doing a great work through his church, scattering them that he might gather more into his family. Now, most of us, if you've lived in the Western world any time, you have noticed that Christianity is not on the rise, it's on the decline, and secularism is on the rise. And so, living as a Christian in the Western world and proclaiming the gospel as a Christian in the Western world is no longer considered conventional. In fact, we would say it's quite unconventional now to live as Christ and to proclaim the gospel. It's no longer in step with the general culture, the beliefs, and the way of this world to proclaim christ and as a result many christians in the west and certainly here in the bay area and i would say in san jose we we bemoan our historical moment as though it's an anomaly as though something strange is happening that ought not but as we make our way through acts we're going to move outside of jerusalem into judea and samaria and then to the ends of the earth you're going to see a very clear pattern here is that the gospel of jesus christ is always unconventional always unconventional Anytime we propose a faith in Christ and a love in God through Christ and this way of life the Scriptures call us to, we will always see contradiction with the culture. It will always be pressing against the culture. In other words, our current struggle in the West and here in San Jose and uh, people rejecting the teachings of Christ and, and we've seen even recently people coming against the church itself, um, it shouldn't surprise us. The God we serve is not a conventional God. He doesn't communicate to us like false gods. He doesn't engage us like false gods. And he doesn't leave us in our sin like false gods. Praise God for that. It did not surprise the Jews living in Jerusalem five years post-Pentecost that they had the rebellion from God's people coming against them. It did not surprise them. And it certainly, my beloved, did not surprise God. It did not surprise God because it was God's plan that Stephen should be martyred and the, the persecution come upon the church and the church move beyond the city walls of Jerusalem. Remember the testimony in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, they couldn't stay in Jerusalem. They had to get out. And they weren't going to leave on their own. And so God brought persecution for that next stage of the gospel, moving out to redeem lost souls. And I would like to look at this first movement um, in this passage by looking at three things. Number one, God's unconventional methods. His unconventional methods. Number two, God's unconventional message and the unconventional results. So an unconventional method, unconventional message, and unconventional results. If there's a theme for the sermon, there might be several, but one that would come to mind would be this. Make God's unconventional ways your new normal. Make God's unconventional ways, his methods, his message, and his results. Make it your normal. So when you think of conventional life, you're thinking as Christ thought, and lived. Amen? All right, point number one, God's unconventional methods. So if you remember last week we left off, Stephen had been arrested, he went through the trial, he testified to Christ, and they murdered him. And his murder lit a match, and it ignited the first major persecution against the church in the New Testament. Look at the latter part of verse one. And there arose on that day, that's the day surrounding Stephen's Execution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and the and they, the church in Jerusalem, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, if you've been here, you know that the the persecution has been growing. Right, we had Peter and John were first arrested, and and they were they were warned, and then they were released, and then all twelve disciples were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were they were warned, and they were beaten, and then they were released, and then as we saw last week. Stephen was brought before that same body, that same legal body in Jerusalem. Uh, He was warned, and then he was executed. After testifying clearly to the gospel and the need for repentance and faith, they put him to death. And that death did not satisfy those who hated Christ and the gospel. It only fueled their passion. And so what we see here is a movement against the Jews specifically, and most commentators would agree it was against the Hellenistic Jews. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, and so we see that movement. It's probably why Luke says the persecution came and many were scattered except the apostles. The apostles were not Hellenistic Jews. They were native born and therefore they stayed likely with many other non-Hellenistic Jew, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so after describing the burial of, of Stephen by devout men, Luke gives us some more details on the persecution itself. Look at verse three. It said, but Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, we've already been introduced to Saul. Remember, he was standing there holding the garments of the witnesses when they executed Stephen. And he, we're told, Luke tells us that he actually approved of the execution. But we're told here that he is ravaging the church. And that word ravage in the Greek, it it pertains to the literal translation is lions and tigers and bears devouring flesh, eating flesh. So the imagery is very powerful for us. And so Saul is ravaging the church like an animal, going from house to house in gatherings just like this, identifying those who have professed Christ and then dragging them off with the legal authority of the Sanhedrin and then putting them into prison. The result of such hostilities, we're told, that many fled Jerusalem out to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. But I want you to notice something very interesting here. Luke does not say that they fled He uses the word scattered. Look again. It says, verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions. What's the difference between fleeing and being scattered? You say, well, I don't know. They sound very similar. They might. The word in the Greek for scatter, the root word is seed. You say, oh, no, wait a minute. They didn't just flee in some random hysteria These individuals who knew Jesus Christ were being scattered like seed by who? By the eternal sower himself, God the Father. In other words, the Hellenistic Jews, they were leaving. They were leaving because they were being persecuted. And so they were were fleeing for their lives. But even more importantly, God was providentially using the persecution to cast them, to scatter them outside of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. In other words, they became living gospel seeds. And where they would land... The gospel would grow. My beloved, God's unconventional methods, certainly here. I think at times when we experience persecution and suffering, we push back on that. It's really a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God. And we may not even like it at times, but we certainly cannot deny the effectiveness of God bringing about persecution for this purpose. The persecution scattered Christians and led to what? More Christians. The exact opposite. Saul and the Sanhedrin, they wanted to put the Christians to death. They wanted to silence them. But in their vengeance and in their anger, the very thing that they meant for evil, God meant for good. So the church scatters and we get more Christians. And then Paul has to go after them. And they scatter and we get more Christians. You know what? God's been using that formula for 2,000 years. Replicating churches and replicating Christians by Christians going and proclaiming the gospel. I know we're not a, a farming community, but I I believe that even suburbanites like us, we we get the thought of a seed landing someplace and growing where it wasn't planted particularly. I have poison oak behind my house and I just realized the other day, it's, it's pretty far back and I was taking out the garbage and there's oak now on the side of my house. I'm like, oh, that seed just traveled and where it landed, it's going to grow. What a glorious thought that when Christians land in places where the gospel is not and they proclaim the gospel, that God uses that to save many to bring them into his family and into his kingdom. In other words, my beloved, God's ways are unconventional, to say the least. And you know what? His ways have not changed. His methods have not changed. God said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, centuries before the arrival of Christ, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. This is Isaiah 55, verse 9. He said, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you're a believer in Christ and you love the Lord and you love the word, you say yes, amen to that. At least you will hear on a Sunday morning. But when it comes to practicing that, I don't think at times we really do believe that God's ways are better than our ways. I think a lot of the times we believe that our ways are better than God's ways and we try to get God's ways to fit into our worldview. How high, my friends, are the thoughts and ways of most Western churches today when they approach church growth? If you've read any church growth books lately or you've attended a conference, they're certainly not setting forth an Acts chapter 8 paradigm for growing God's church. Marketing campaigns, celebrity endorsements are a big one today. Services that feel, look, and sound like the world. You want to get people in, be like the world, they'll come in, and then you do the bait and switch and you get them to Christ. In some places, moral compliance And religion has replaced the gospel of grace and in other places the gospel of grace has led to sinfulness, self-indulgence, and licentiousness. Certainly we could argue today in the Western church that the lines between heaven and hell have been blurred significantly and no longer is the primary purpose in life to glorify God but it has become to glorify self with God as an appendage. Most Western churches will not adopt an acts 8 model for church growth because that means suffering that means sacrifice that means putting yourself in a position in your culture that you may bring persecution upon yourself what is an acts 8 model for church growth it's simple love god passionately serve one another in love live a holy life proclaim the gospel of jesus christ with all your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and then when they persecute you, which they will, you endure that persecution as long as you can until you have to leave. And then when you leave, you go do the same thing wherever you land until you can't stay there. And then you go somewhere else. You say, well, that's, that's a very uncomfortable church growth model. I like the marketing. I like the celebrities. Well, God doesn't. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Praise God. The harsh reality is that most Western churches, and I would argue, Most Western Christians do not approach spiritual growth like this because deep down we don't like the unconventional methods of God. Right? God works through suffering. We want comfort. God moves through persecution. We want peace, even at the expense of righteousness. God works through the hard work of his people. We want grace without responsibility, without commitment, and without effort. We just want the grace. God works by turning hearts to Christ, that we want to obey. We want to obey in order to have Christ. My beloved Christ, God the Father killed Stephen and scattered the church, not because he's an unloving God and not because he wasn't concerned about the families that dwelt in Jerusalem. He scattered the church because he is infinitely more loving than we want him to be. He's infinitely more loving than we think he is. You see, the creator of the universe, he cares much more about the eternal souls of men than he does the creature comforts of his people who have already been bought by the blood of Jesus. Jesus made this clear in the call to discipleship in Mark 8, which you've already heard, listen again with all your might. Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a life of hardship. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is nothing, of course. In other words, the physical comfort and peace and relaxation of God's people on earth is not a, does not play a major role in his redemptive plan. I hate to break that to you. If that's your version of Christianity, come in, relax, be blessed, enjoy, see Jesus. That's not his plan. We're gonna have all that. You want physical comfort? You want eternal peace and relaxation? You're gonna have all that infinitely more in the eschaton when Christ comes again in glory. But right now, we are servants and witnesses to Jesus, and we are called to go and bring that gospel to the lost. God's purpose from the very beginning has to bring himself honor and glory globally not just here in San Jose, not just in Jerusalem or Samaria, to bring millions and millions to a saving grace through the blood of Jesus Christ, bringing himself glory and Christ's glory in the Spirit as well. His purpose is to create a new family of redeemed people, made of redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why his method seems so strange to us. Our way of life centers around ourselves, God's way of life for us centers around his own glory and the salvation of the lost. So if we want to successfully participate in God's redemptive plan for the nations and experience, I would argue, true purpose, true joy, and true meaning in life, if we want that, then we must stop being so tied to our conventional methods of how we think our lives ought to go. Certainly in the Western world, doing only what is safe, Only what is easy, only that which is comfortable and requires very little sacrifice for the kingdom. If his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not his thoughts, then his methods for growing his church will not be our methods. Amen? Point number one, God's ways are unconventional. They're good. They're very good. What about his message? Is that unconventional too? Point number two, God's unconventional message. So Luke continues the narrative here, and he he talks first in the general and then he gets specific. Look at uh, verse 4, how the church scattered. Verse 4, he says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then he gives us a specific example of a man named Philip. He, if you remember, he was one of the seven chosen along with Stephen uh, back in Acts chapter 7 to minister to the Hellenistic widows. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So the first thing that Luke tells us is the church scattered, and you know what they didn't do? They didn't go quietly. They did not go quietly. Instead, we're told, they went about preaching the word. Now, that word preaching in the Greek, it's the English word evangelize. In other words, they were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So those in Judea and Samaria might hear the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not as a result of works. So they taught to his life and his death and his resurrection. And they called people to repent of their sins and come into that relationship with him, that sinners might live instead of die in order to be brought back in to the right relationship, you made in the image of God with your creator, God himself. Now, this would have been shocking to hear. It was shocking in Jerusalem. It would have been shocking in Samaria and certainly was in Judea as well because the proclamation of this message was the message of the gospel. The gospel. And that's not religion. you know. I don't know if you've, people have asked you before, are you religious? And oftentimes Christians will say, yes, I am. That's probably not the best answer. Religion practices and has for centuries where you do a good work to put God in your debt. You do continue to do good. You live a moral life. Make sure that God is pleased with you. Then when you die, he lets you in. That's not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is actually just the opposite of that. That God, out of his infinite love for you, sent his son to die for your sins, that he might bring you in independent of your morality or your good works. Religion says be good, make sacrifices to God, live a moral life, don't cheat on your wife, don't cheat on your taxes, and then God will let you in. In other words, you're wagering with God. You're, You're putting him in your debt so that when the scales of justice, on that day of judgment when you come before God, and the scales of justice, you want them to tip in your favor. right? You've done more good than bad. And therefore God, who is a just God, is going to say, well, obviously, you are more good than bad, so I must let you in. That wasn't the message they were proclaiming. The unconventional message that they proclaimed as they preached the gospel is that no one is good, no, not one. Not one person is good. God's message says that we are spiritually dead in our sins, that we're dead in our sins, and we need to be made alive by God, not cleaned up a little bit. The gospel message tells us that the only way to be forgiven for our sinful hearts and our rebellion against God is not by doing good works to tip the scales of justice in our favor, but to repent and believe on Christ. It's by recognizing that we are sinners through and through. It's by recognizing that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's our nature, inherited from Adam and Eve and fully exercised in our own will. J.C. Ryle writes this, listen, he said, the disease of sin may be veiled under a thin covering of courtesy, politeness, good manners, but it lies deep down in the constitution of the soul of every man. Deep down. You say, well, but they're so nice, they're so kind, and they're so loving and so courteous. Praise God for that, that's wonderful common grace. If they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, they are still dead in their sins. So says the Bible. My beloved, every word Every thought, every good work you have ever done is tainted and contaminated and spoiled by sinful desires. And so the message that these gospel seeds, these people are proclaiming, is not your good works, and it certainly was not religion. It was coming to God, confessing these sins, recognizing that there's no work you can do to be saved, and then putting your faith in the only one who can save you, who is Christ. And then when that, when that happens... Christ forgives those who repent and believe, and he brings them into a right, eternal, living relationship with his Father. The problem with the unconventional message of grace instead of works is that our sinful, glory-starved hearts, we don't like it. We we want some skin in the game. I mean, we, we want to have some peace, some part, some say in our own salvation. That's still the attempt, as it was with Adam and Eve, to be like God. Deep down, we want to have a choice. We want our good life to count for our salvation. We want to be able to say, well, the family that I was born into, the success of my career, the bank account, my education, have you seen my degrees? Of course I should go to heaven. I'm too smart not to. We want to set the standard of goodness by our own laws rather than Submitting to the laws of God. And we do that because if we set up a standard of righteousness, that means we can change the rules and we don't like them. And we can actually evaluate our own success based upon our own rules. And guess what? We always win. You set up your own rules and then you live according to those rules, guess what? You're going to deem yourself always successful. Always ready in your mind to enter into the presence of God of a holy God. In other words, we want to be the lawgiver and we want to be the judge at the exact same time. You know who the lawgiver and the judge is? It's God. And so now we're at the root problem of the sinful heart. It's not breaking a moral code. It's not doing the right things or doing the wrong things and therefore God is angry with you and will not let you in. At the very root of sin is the desire to be God. To be our own rule maker and our own judge. And if you're going to be your own God, then you have to reject the living God. You can't have both. There's only one throne. There's only one king. Make yourself king in your own heart, and Christ must be removed. And so the church went about preaching this unconventional message. You say, well, what was that? Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what they were preaching. And in the unconventional message, they had an unconventional Savior. Look at verse 5. We're told that Philip... He's one of the church that's scattered now. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. That's, that's the Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior. Now the exact location of where he landed, there's such debate on that, I'm gonna tell you, we don't know. And I, I have no idea. What well, we do know that he's in Samaria and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Samaritans. That we know for sure. Now the Samaritans, if you don't know them at all, they were Judah's neighbor to the north and they have a, a long and sorted History. They, were, they were considered by the Jews neither Jew nor Gentile. They were considered half-breeds. And a half-breed was worse than a Gentile. And therefore, the term Samaritan was a derogatory term by Jews one to another. The Samaritans descended from the ten tribes of Israel following Solomon's reign when the two kingdoms split. And when, it, when uh, Israel, the ten tribes, fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722, they started to intermarry. And they started to intermarry, intermarry with those who were living there at the time and those who were brought in by the Assyrians. But for centuries, even after the fall, they still considered themselves the people of God. They had their own version of the Pentateuch, their sacred scriptures. They circumcised their, their male children on the eighth day. They actually had their own temple. They built a temple to rival the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. And they sacrificed sacrifices with their own priest to the living God. The Jews hated this so much. It was so extreme. They they considered the Samaritans to not only be half-breeds, but illegitimate sons of Abraham and deserving of immediate judgment, not salvation. Not salvation. And so Luke, this is amazing. Luke addressing the gospel going out of Jerusalem to the Samaritans first would have been astonishing to the Jews. The first place the gospel lands is in the most hated people by the Jews. You say, well, why would God do that? Because God's intention is to use the gospel to break every single barrier, racial barrier, language barrier, academic barrier, to break every single barrier down that he might bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his family. Bringing even here the most unexpected, yes, even the Samaritans, into the family of Yahweh, into the family of God. Now, the Samaritans, you might not know this, they were also waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Teheb, which literally means a restorer. A prophet like Moses, they believed, would come and he would establish his throne, not in Jerusalem, but out out Mount Gerizim. And so for centuries, the Samaritans had suffered foreign oppressors, starting with the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then, and then the Greeks, and then the Jews, and then the Romans. They suffered at the hands of foreign powers. And so they too, like their brothers in, in Jerusalem, they were looking for a savior, but not a savior like Christ. They were looking for someone with some military might who's going to come in and cast off the yoke. In this particular time of the Romans, someone sent by God to fulfill the promise of Abraham and set his people free. Now we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus actually visited the Samaritans. You know this because you know the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And so Philip goes to a people who had already seen God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he says, your Teheb, your Restorer, is here. He's already come. He's already lived, he's already died, and he now is seated upon the throne. Not the military conqueror that you think, but a suffering servant a suffering servant, an unconventional savior, a man of sorrows, the sacrificial lamb of God who ascended the cross to put an end to all sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem and in the temple in Mount Gerizim. A savior that no doubt Philip taught would cultivate a faith and obedience to God not by religion but by affection, by the transformation of hearts, Gospel love that would come along and captivate hearts and minds to such a great degree that people would want to submit. They'd want to know God and they'd want to follow him. Philip claimed the Christ, Luke tells us, the true conqueror over a much greater oppressor than Assyria or Babylon or the Romans. He proclaimed Christ crucified and therefore conquer over sin and death. Conquers over those Enabling those who know him to be forgiven. So, by ascending the cross on their behalf, listen, the half bred, illegitimate heretics of the north could come back in. They could be brought, brought back into God's family, being forgiven completely of all the sins. They were under judgment for idolatry, forgiven of all their sins for centuries and brought back into the covenant of Abraham. Not because of their blood tie to Abraham but because of the Teheb, the restorer who came, Jesus Christ, and made a way for them to become children of Abraham by faith. By faith. The Samaritans had put all their hope in a false savior. Philip came and said, that's the wrong one. The real savior has already come and he's seated upon the throne and he's offering you salvation by grace through faith. The savior confusion they experienced that we see here in Acts 8, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, it still is a problem for us today. Instead of living to glorify God, we live to exalt ourselves and we seek out our own saviors. So why, why do we do that? If, if Christ is the Teheb, if he is the Restorer, if he is the savior, why do we seek them out? I think, in part, if not the primary reason, is that if we create our own savior, we can control that savior right? If I create a Savior for myself, whatever that Savior may be, it may be my marriage or my children or my job. If I create my own Savior, then I can control that Savior, and I can determine how much I give of myself to that Savior in return. He or she can only ask me so much because I have control over them. A pastor once shared this story about one of his members, an older woman who was raised in in a church that taught more religion than gospel, and she'd been raised in a place that They said that essentially the true gospel was that God will accept you if in fact you live a moral life. And so she attended this church and on the first time she was there, she heard the gospel of grace by faith in Christ. Free grace. And she came up to the pastor afterward and she said, that's a, a scary idea. Free grace. And he was curious and so he pressed her a bit and said, why is it scary? Listen to what she said. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me and put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But, she says, if it is really true that I am a sinner, saved by sheer grace, at the infinite cost to God, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. She was getting it. She was getting the weight of the gospel, this glorious gospel. She was grasping both sides of the cross. In fact, this over-the-top good news that by pure grace through faith, she received full forgiveness of all of her sins and she could now relate to God without fear and anxiety. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Will I get in? That's all gone. It's glorious. She got that. And at the same time, she realized that if Jesus did, he really did what the Bible says he did and he really did it out of his infinite love for her, that he gave his life on the cross, then she also realized she was not her own. She was bought with a price. She was bought with a price, an infinite, glorious, blood-bought price. My beloved, we have all, we have all put our faith in conventional saviors of various kinds. Lately, for many, we have put our faith in politicians and doctors who speak like God. Many of us have put our faith in a marriage or children or parents. Some, our health, our bank accounts, our physiques. Listen closely. Whatever, whoever it is that you put your faith in as a conventional Savior, that is not Jesus Christ, the unconventional Savior, the Restorer of God, whoever or whatever it is, you will continue, even as you profess Christ, to negotiate the terms of your relationship with God. As long as you have a false savior that you're hanging on to, instead of the one true unconventional savior, Jesus Christ, you will define the terms of your relationship. You will submit sometimes and not others. Why? Because you want to control it. You want to control what God can do with you and how much he may put you through. You will continue to be motivated by fear or anxiety or dissatisfaction knowing in your heart of hearts you've never done enough, you can't do enough. You can't do enough. That's why the gospel is so sweet and so powerful. Until you see the infinite love that Jesus paid to have and love you, until you see that, you will not be willing to die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. You will not. Which, by the way, is the calling for every Christian. That is is the unconventional message. Right? Right? Die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. How long? Your whole life. And oh, by the way, for all eternity, because he remains your Savior. You still with me? I got one more. We've seen God's unconventional methods. We may not like them, but they're always good. We've seen God's unconventional message salvation by grace through faith, not works. I want to give you one more God's unconventional results. If you haven't been listening thus far, hold on. This is so fantastic. What happens when the gospel lands, when these gospel seeds land amongst a people who did not know Jesus and people come to Jesus? What happens? Some incredible things. Look at verse six. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Verse seven. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. You know, you could do a whole sermon on just verse 8, couldn't you? There was much joy in that city. Philip comes to the Samaritans, preaching a crucified, risen Savior, and exercising powerful signs. Powerful signs. Now, we've already noted when we looked at the signs that the apostles were exercising. The, The signs were not to be glorified in and of themselves and the signs were not to glorify those who were exercising them. The signs were to tell us that the kingdom of God has actually come. It was to authenticate the gospel message itself and to tell us as Philip was telling the Philippians, Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ, the true Savior, sits upon his throne and he's granting salvation to anyone who repents and believes, including you, Samaritans, right now, This very moment. So the signs not only got their attention, we're told in verse 6, the crowds with one accord, they they were mesmerized. They paid attention to what was what? Being said. So the signs were great. It got their attention, but they were focused on what was being said. And what was being said were the unconventional results that come to a people who hear the gospel, repent, and believe and receive Christ. The unconventional results. What were they? Darkness instead of light. Light came in, the darkness is cast out. Where there was suffering, there was healing. Where there was despair, there is joy. All as a result of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. Let's look at the first one. We see that there was darkness and God brought light. Verse seven. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. What a sight that must have been. And what an incredible sight. People are hearing the gospel, they're repenting and believing, and in that process, demonic spirits, unclean spirits are coming out of people, crying out loudly, and then they're set free. They are now living and enter into the light of Christ. Now the Samaritans for centuries had been judged by God. They were once a people of God that continued to worship idols, and so God judged them. And so they were very much like us They had a a vague and distorted version of God, and they had incorporated paganism into their beliefs. And as a result, they were consumed by, Luke talks about, unclean spirits. But Jesus comes in, the gospel's proclaimed, people are saved, and what happens? The light turns on. Not just a light, but the light. Christ is the light of the world. And suddenly, all that darkness that had consumed the Samaritans for centuries, centuries, literally, is now being pushed out. And the light of Christ had come So powerful was this light that the demons don't just leave quietly. Notice they cry out with a loud voice. They're in anguish because demons love darkness and they cannot handle the light of Christ. And they came out of many of them. My beloved, here's the great news. Wherever Jesus lands, his feet, wherever he takes hold, any darkness, any stronghold that Satan has is pushed back or pushed out entirely. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh my goodness. You following Jesus, you trusting in Jesus, you putting your hope and faith in Jesus, the light of life means the light of God will be your daily life. You don't have to live in the darkness. You don't have to be consumed and enslaved by sin if you know Christ Jesus as Lord. That means, my beloved, Whatever sins you're struggling with right now, whatever debilitating sins that you have convinced yourselves you cannot overcome in Christ, it is an absolute lie. The light of Christ has the power to push out the darkness and break in real time any slavery, any stronghold that is on your life. Failing marriages in Christ can be restored. You don't believe that? Talk to my parents. Drug and alcohol addictions can be overcome in Christ. Covetousness can be tempered. Anger can be abated. And ungratefulness, ungrateful hearts, can be completely satisfied in Christ. All through the light of the Lord. He brings satisfaction to such a degree that you won't want to sin. My beloved, the only reason you want to sin is because you have a greater desire for that sin than you do for the love of Christ. He'll bring a satisfaction that will give you the power to say, I don't want that sin anymore. I don't want the darkness. I want Christ. But he also gives us a vision. He enables us to see clearly the path going forward. The light of Christ is that lamp into our feet, is it not? It's that our ability to move our way through life, making wise choices in light of God's will according to his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. listen. In, in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, do you remember that point in time when Christian's making his way to the valley of the shadow of death? It's such an incredible part. Listen to this. Bunyan writes it better than I'd say it, so let me read it. The way in the valley of the shadow of death, the way was all along set, so full of snares and traps and gins and nets here and so full of pits and pitfalls, deep holes and shelvings down there that had it not been dark, As it was when he first came to the part of the way, had he had a thousand souls, they all would have been cast away. Wouldn't have made it. Wouldn't have made it. But then, listen to this. But then the sun was rising. Then said Christian, his candle shines upon my head and by his light I walk through darkness. Oh, I love that line. I'll read it again. His Christ candle shines upon my head and by his light I walk through darkness. My beloved, no one's disagreeing that these are not dark times. Christ is your light. He will enable you to walk through this darkness and not suffer the pitfalls that lay before you. So the gospel in Jesus Christ bring light to darkness. Number two. Suffering is overcome by healing. Look at the latter part of verse 7. Many who were paralyzed or lame were what? They were healed. These are supernatural healings. The same healings we saw Christ and the apostles, the disciples do in the gospels, the apostles did. Validating again the presence and power of the kingdom, bringing real healing, because that's what the gospel does. It brings real healing to real lives. And it also is pointing to that future that point in time when the consummation comes and Christ returns, and what does he do? He's gonna bring heaven to earth and his people are gonna be gathered and there'll be a complete and total restoration of all fallen creation, not just you and your soul, but all of creation, the heavens and the earth, completely and totally restored. And that would include your body. And if your body's a bit broken, as mine is right now, that thought is fantastic. No more bad knees, no more difficulty breathing, No more late night headaches. They will all go away. Psalm 24, David asked this question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear deceitfully. The physical healings, most importantly, pointed to the spiritual transformation and the spiritual cleansing that the gospel brings, enabling us to do what? To ascend the hill of the Lord, to enter the throne room of God. When David asked that question in Psalm 24, he's describing Christ. Christ is the only man who had clean hands and a pure heart. He's the only man who lived a perfect life and therefore could ascend the hill of God and enter the throne room. But here's the great news. The great news of the gospel is that through his death and resurrection and by grace through faith in him, you get it. You receive what? What do you receive? You receive his righteousness for free. You get the perfect record. Of Jesus Christ, imputed, given, placed upon you, right now. So, if you're in Christ, in one sense, you are absolutely, perfectly holy because you have His holy record. Which is why the author Hebrews says we can enter the throne room, right, with joy, not filled with fear. We can enter in the presence of God right now, because we have been counted worthy by the blood of Jesus, a free gift. Free gift, you didn't earn it, but it got you backstage. When I when I was in college, uh, one of my roommates' dad worked for the San Francisco Giants, and he sent my friend Chip. He sent him two tickets. And my friend said, "You want to go to the Giants game?" And I'm like, "Sure." It was a Friday night, and we got to go. And I had been my dad used to take us to baseball games, but we went. And I had never been to a game like this. We went down to the dugout. We went up to the press booth. We sat in this luxury suite. Never, I've never seen anything like it. And it was all free. The dad said, here, take them. We didn't earn them. We didn't buy them. I didn't do anything good afterwards to pay him back. It was a free gift. My beloved, you are a sinner in Christ saved by grace, which means you have full access to God, which means you can commune with the living God right now through Christ and his spirit. It means that if you can commune with God, then you have all the power of the heavenly realm to not be paralyzed and not be lame in your life. You don't have to have a paralyzed marriage. You don't have to be a poor worker. You don't have to be lame in your ministry or your witness or your testimony to your neighbors. You have power that flows from on high because you have communion with God in Christ. So there's light where there was darkness. There's healing where there was suffering. I'll give you one more and I'll close, I promise. I think this is the best one. There's joy. Where there was despair, the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is received, verse 8. So there was much joy, not just a little joy, there was much joy in that city. In what city? Not Jerusalem. And of all places, in Samaria. I mean, this is the wrong place for the joy of God to be. These were were second-class citizens. They believed in the eyes of God, and they believed, the Jews believed the same. And yet here, the second-class citizens are being offered an opportunity to come all the way in and belong again. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers them a place in the kingdom. No longer the vile neighbors to the north, No longer worshiping on the wrong mountain with the wrong scriptures. No longer offering sacrifices that were not pleasing to God. No longer, through the sacrifice of Christ, they're now brought all the way in and now they have a place to belong. And therefore, my beloved, there was joy because you know in your heart of hearts, when you belong, when you are loved deeply, when you are part of a family and you know that there's a place for you, oh, there's joy, there's joy. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller, he shared a story that I remember when I first read, it struck me from a, a, a film called Three Seasons and it was a, a foreign film that had these um, mini stories of, of life in post-war Vietnam. And this one just hit me. I'll read it to you and then I'll close. The story was about Hai, a cycle, cyclo-driver, that's a, a, like a bicycle rickshaw, and a woman named Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Both had deep, unfulfilled desires. Hai is in love with Lan, but she is out of his price range. Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in a beautiful world of the elegant hotels where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape. That's her conventional savior that she's looking for. But instead, the work brutalizes and enslaves her. All false saviors do. Then High enters a cyclo race and he wins the top prize. And with the money, he brings land to the hotel. He pays for the night and pays her fees. And then, to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and his wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in the normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Land finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking, hi, has done this only to control her. That's oftentimes how we want to receive grace. But when it became apparent that he was using his power to serve her rather than to use her, it begins to transform her. Listen to this making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. She left it entirely. Love, my beloved, unmerited, sacrificial, other-centered love, one lawn's heart. Jesus Christ, who has all the power of the heavens and the earth, saw us completely enslaved thinking we could be set free and we could have joy with our conventional ways and our conventional saviors and our conventional results, which are so pathetic. But out of his infinite love for you, he used his power to serve instead. He emptied himself of his glory and became a man, I would argue, a most radically unconventional thing for God to do. And he did it at the cost of his own life paying the debt that you owed for the sins on the cross so that he could purchase us. The only true place in our heart to find peace and joy, he could purchase us that place to belong inside the family of God. The gospel, my beloved, is for the prostitute and the Samaritan and the half-breed and the paralyzed and the lame. The gospel is for all who are willing to see that they are sinners through and through and that their own works and their own saviors have no power to deliver us into the light to receive the healing or experience the joy we so desperately want. My beloved, the gospel is for you. It is for you. I call you in Christ to come into his light this morning to experience the healing power of faith and enjoy and enjoy the presence of God. Not as an outsider, not as a Samaritan, but as a citizen and a friend. We had a chance to sing the hymn, listen, soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? You cannot, you cannot be discouraged. The gospel's too good, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for all those who do not know the love of Christ, the unconventional, sacrificial, infinite love of Christ as expressed upon the cross this morning, I pray you'd show it to them professing believer or not, I pray that you would show them the reality of this unconventional message and this unconventional Savior. And in that love, Father, I pray that you would help us, cause us, equip us to be true disciples, to die to ourselves, to pick up our crosses, and to follow Christ. Even if we don't like the unconventional ways that you sometimes put forth and, and the persecution and suffering sometimes we must go through, we know it is best It is best because it brings you honor and glory, and it's best because it sanctifies sinners like us. Father, I pray you would do that great work here, that you would cause each and every one of us to have a deeper understanding of the love that Christ has for us as displayed upon that cross. And in so doing, Father, I pray that we would walk in holiness, that we would bring the light of the gospel and the healing power of faith and the great joy that we have in Christ to all those around us who do not know the Lord, that we might be like those in the early church that were scattered seeds of the gospel, sharing it with everyone who will listen. I pray, Lord, that there be a great testimony coming out of the walls of this church this morning, and that our neighbors and our friends and family would come to know Christ too. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.